playing, guys. It was really good. This must be a special Sunday because they have flowers up here. I don't think it's because of me speaking. Let's turn to Matthew. Yes, it is a special Sunday. It is Palm Sunday. And my message today is about Palm Sunday from Matthew chapter 21. This is the day that we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Here is found in Matthew chapter 21. It's one of the few incidents in the life of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels, so you can also find it in the other Gospels as well, and some of the references I'll be making will actually be from the other Gospels, so you kind of got to put the whole story together from all four uh, passages. Uh, Palm Sunday also marks the beginning of what we call Passion Week, and Passion Week begins today and ends on Easter Sunday. Uh, Passion Week is so named because of the passion that Jesus Christ had uh, for us so that he would be willing to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men and be crucified, that he would pay the price for our sins that we could be forgiven. He had that passion within him to go to Jerusalem knowing that how it would end with him dying on the cross, but also rising again. Um, so Passion Week here is recorded beginning in this passage here, Matthew chapter 21, through the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and also, as I said, in the other Gospel. And many memorable events are found here in the um, Passion Week passage. In addition to the triumphal entry, you have the what is known as the Olivet Discourse, a very well-known teaching by Jesus Christ. You'll find the Last Supper, the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal by Judas, his arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. So as Christians, we should be very familiar with all of these events and know what they mean for us in our life. Yes, Jesus demonstrated his passion for us that week, and um, which would hope, hopefully lead us to think about our own passion for him. He wants us to have a passion for him and for his things and for his work. So I challenge us all this week to increase our passion for Christ. You know, in Colombia, South America, um, I know this because my father's a missionary down there, so I've, he's spoken to us about things that happen in Colombia. And one of the things that they do this week is they have special Easter conferences because of it being Easter week. So they have extra meetings, and they have preaching and singing, and I'm sure there's other things that they do. I'm not for very familiar with the, everything, but it's always been kind of a challenge to me, I always because I always think, well, well, look at those Christians down in Columbia who, you know, we sent missionaries from here to go help them become Christians and form churches, and yet they're kind of out doing us, right, on Easter week anyway. They, they have these conferences and spend a lot of time in church, and we really don't do much extra for for Easter week, and, and I guess that's okay, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says that we have to have special meetings on Easter week, and, and we have our own special meetings and things that we do that maybe they don't do, so I don't want to, you know, make, it look, make us look too bad. <laughs> but anyway, I say that because I want to challenge us all this week. Um, I want to give you the Passion Week challenge. Now, challenges have been much more common in the last few years, I think, ever since social media came out. Um, a few years ago, 
some of you crazy people I saw on Facebook putting buckets of water over, ice water over your head uh, for some charity or something like that, and you were challenging one another to do the same thing. So, so challenges are kind of popular these days, and I, I, I googled some challenges, and there's a whole list of challenges out there now. So anyway, we're going to have our own Passion Week challenge, so here it is. The challenge for us this week is that if you, if you accept the challenge, I don't know if you're you know, willing to do that, but if you accept the challenge, uh, the first, there's three things. The first thing is to read um, Matthew chapter 21 through the end of the gospel this week or one of the other passages in, from one of the other gospels about Passion Week. So number one is to read that during the week. So you have a whole seven days to do that. Pretty doable. Number two is to pray every day that um, you're, the Lord would increase your passion for him, for his things, for his work. And number three, which uh, probably the hardest one, is to uh, do something this week to show your passion for Christ. And you can't use number one and two to fulfill number three. So, <laughs> little rule there. So number three is to do something for Christ. So maybe you'll witness to somebody, maybe you'll share a tract, Maybe you'll bake something and take it to a neighbor uh, or do something for somebody. Maybe you'll be involved in a Christian service this week. Uh, let's all try to challenge ourselves as part of this Passion Week challenge to do something for the Lord in addition to reading and praying. So, and I'm going to email you all later this, today about that. The Passion Week challenge. So Jesus, uh, so let's, let's go to our passage here and read about... Uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 1, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we spend this time in your word, we pray that you'll bless us, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus and his disciples came here, as you see in verse 1, to Bethpage which is a village on the Mount of Olives, and a very short distance from Jerusalem, only a couple of miles. And so he sends, um, right away, he sends two of his disciples into the village to find a colt, the foal of a donkey, and bring it back to Jesus. So um, Jesus says that if anyone questions them about it, uh, just to say the Lord has need of them. Um, and this is done to fulfill a prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. And you see the prophecy fulfilled there and um, quoted there in, chapter, in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 21. 
and the, the, the prophecy about the Messiah coming to his people, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the way that Jesus commandeered the uh, donkey was kind of interesting, I think. Um, he could have said, well, here, here, take some of this money and go buy a donkey for me. Or, and, if, and if they give you a, you know, if they don't want to sell it, just offer them double what it's worth. Just, I just need a donkey. Um, however, that could have been seen as somewhat suspicious. He could have been seen as manipulating the events, right, to fulfill a prophecy from the Old Testament about a Messiah. Um, and the way it actually occurred, uh, we see that those who saw the, and you don't see it here in this gospel, you see it in another gospel, the way it actually occurred, when the disciples went to uh, take the animals, um, the people questioned them, but in the end they were willing to uh, let them take the animals because they said, because the disciples said the Lord has need of them. So uh, think of, when you think about that, it's kind of amazing. Uh, it's kind of akin to maybe after the service here, you go into the parking lot into your car and you start driving, but you don't you know, just pull out of your parking spot and you go, oh, I forgot something. And you pull around and you leave your car running, you run into the building here, you grab your Bible or your plate or whatever you forgot, and you go back out there and you see somebody climbing in your car and you say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, oh, the Lord has need of your car. And you're like, okay, no problem. <laughs> I get it, uh, plenty of gas, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Don't worry about it. And that's not likely to happen, right? I don't think we would react that way. Uh, but in this story, uh, we see uh, quite differently here where the people were just, hey, sure, no problem. The Lord has need of it. And so that leads me to think that there was uh, divine intervention here in this, right? That somehow God had prepared the way so that these people were willing to let them um, take the animals or perhaps, you know, the Lord had, the, the Lord had guided, the Holy Spirit had guided them to someone who knew, recognized them. Maybe they had heard Jesus preaching. So, again, it was all worked out uh, by the Lord, and there was divine intervention as opposed to Jesus just saying, go buy me some animals. Um, so, again, this was done to, to fulfill that prophecy from uh, Zechariah 9.9, and, and we'll read that in a few minutes, but... The other thing I wanted to say, too, for all of us who aren't animal lovers, there, are some, there is some terminology used here that you might not be familiar with. I found it helpful to kind of look, every, uh, look up this terminology because I didn't understand uh, what, all the, what all these words meant. So I thought it would be helpful to go over that uh, so that you don't get confused or maybe at some point in time somebody who's you know, not a Christian might, or maybe somebody who's just questioning things in the Bible might, might say, well, what does all this mean here? Um, what did he actually ride? So, because if you look in verse 2, Jesus, uh, and it doesn't seem apparent at first, but it, he actually asks for a, um, that they'll find a donkey and a colt, and he says to bring them both to him. So, I read this, you know, for weeks, and I didn't realize that until, like, yesterday, that there were actually two animals, you know? And uh, so, so then uh, they bring those animals to him, and so we, don't, we all know what a donkey is, right? We've seen pictures of donkeys, or maybe we've seen real, real live donkeys. But what is a colt? Well, a colt is a young male horse or related family. So it could, in this case, a colt is a young male donkey, right? So then if we look at the passage there in verse 5, it says, uh, and it's also quoted in Zechariah 9.9, it says a colt, he'll be sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and a foal is a young donkey. Um, 
is a young animal, a young horse or a related family. So basically a young, don a young donkey. <laughs> Hard to say that fast. A young donkey. So, so he was riding a young male donkey who had, in, in fact, in one of the Gospels say it had never been ridden before. Which is also interesting, too, that the animal had never ridden before. Now, you would think that an animal who had never been ridden before would have to be broken, right? Especially a young male uh, donkey would, would have to be broken before you can ride him. And now think about it. He's riding it down this mountain. And we're going to see some pictures of the mountain in a minute. And we're going to describe the scene a little more. But he's you know, riding down these mountains, all these you know, hundreds, thousands of people yelling and screaming. And he's riding this, this animal that had never been ridden before. And it's kind of amazing, I think. And um, not being an animal lover, but, you know. But I do, I do have some experiences with animals. And, and Dave Moffat, we were talking last week, and he reminded me of it. I didn't know he was there at the time. I don't remember because it happened 10 years ago or so when we had some, we actually had a horse for my daughter Hannah, at, and we kept him at the Moffats, and the Moffats are our neighbors, and they had some, a, big, a lot of land. And so one day, and I won't tell you the whole story for sake of time, but I was riding the horse, Rosé, because I wanted to teach the horse a thing or two. <laughs> Show Hannah, you know, how this works. And uh, so this horse just flipped out and went crazy, wouldn't pay attention to one of my commands. I was totally lost. And luckily, you know, fortunately, uh, did not fall off the horse. And Dave apparently was there to witness the whole thing. <laughs> it reminded me of that uh, last week. And um, that horse had a mind of its own. And we always had trouble with that horse. Never, you know, we were always a little scared of it, especially me after that point. <laughs> but, and then there was one time where um, somebody we knew uh, was having an event in Caledonia, and they were going to bring in this horse whisperer expert, I'll call him. And they wanted a horse. And I, we got the perfect horse for you. <laughs> Here, you can have rosé for the day. And um, boy. That was amazing. That, that horse whisperer had Rosé eating out of his hands within seconds. I mean, that horse was following him around on his shoulder, walking. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. But um, so, so I have a little experience with animals, and I know that uh, you, would, you would need at least a horse whisperer with you, or you need to know something about, you know, need, need to know how to break a horse in a more traditional way, I suppose. But anyway, I just thought it was worth pointing out that the horse was able to be ridden, ridden by Jesus without being broken. I think, again, that was divine intervention on, on, in that story. Um, so going back to Zechariah 9.9, you know, the prophecy, and you know what, I forgot to read that from Zechariah 9.9. So I'm going to read that, and it's very f similar to Matthew chapter, verse 5 there. It says, Rejoice greatly, o, o daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, very specific about the type of animal he would ride and the description of the animal. And, and so when you look at that prophecy, you think, well, why would, a, why would the, the Old Testament have this passage here about a king riding a donkey? You know, that, that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Uh, even if it was a prophecy, when the people who read it at that time, what would they be thinking? What's this king going to be? But apparently, on the contrary, it was quite um, um, common in the Old Testament for kings to ride donkeys. Hard to, you know, I didn't realize that until I was looking at this this past few weeks. So, for example, 
If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that Solomon rode a donkey on the day that he became the king of Israel. And there were other examples of that in the Old Testament. And so apparently the riding, the riding of a donkey, donkey is synonymous with peace. So if a king is coming in peace, he rides a donkey. If he's coming to make war, he rides a horse. And so, so it wouldn't have been un, you know, unusual for the people of the day to read what Zechariah was, was, was writing because it would make sense to them, especially since he describes the king as uh, lowly, uh, I'm sorry, and just and having salvation and lowly, right, that he'd be a humble king. And also in verse 10 of Zechariah, it says there that he shall speak peace to the nations, right? So, so this was a messianic prophecy, and Jesus is fulfilling it here by riding the donkey into Jerusalem. And he's also saying by doing this, right, he's also saying to the people, I come to bring peace. I come to bring peace to your hearts, peace with God. And uh, that was his purpose in coming to them. Now, the prophecy also refers here in verse 5 to, it says, uh, tell the daughters, the daughter of Zion. Makes that reference here to the daughter of Zion. So who exactly is that, right? Uh, is that a specific person? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, you, you would probably know that um, Zion referred to, um, you know, the, the daughter, um, let me just say, the daughter of Zion is a reference in the Old Testament that occurs many times, usually in reference to prophecy. And the term Zion now is a reference to Jerusalem or Israel in general. So if they say Zion, you can just think he's talking about Israel or he's talking about Jerusalem. That's what Zion means. And <clears throat> so the term daughter of Zion is not referring to a specific person here, but it's used as a metaphor to speak of the loving relationship that the Lord has with his chosen people, um, similar to a loving relationship that a father would have with his daughter. So it's a term of endearment that demonstrates God's loving attitudes for his people. And so I don't want that to be lost because it's just a, a small thing here, right? Tell the daughter of Zion. So it's a very small piece of the, of the whole day here, the whole event, the whole passage. But it's really important because you think about what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is coming to his people, right, to be, and we'll get more into that in a minute, but you know that he's coming to tell the people, to present himself as, as the Messiah, and he's coming in this lowly way. He's not, you know, we spoke about it before he, in the morning meeting. He's not coming with royal robes and saying, kiss my ring or anything like that or bow down to me, not requiring any of that. And he comes... And he says the first thing, the, the message is, now he didn't say that, but the message from the whole Bible is, tell the daughter of Zion. So he's, he's speaking, you know, it speaks of that loving relationship that the, God the Father wants to have with his people. And, um, and that's, something that, that's something that we can experience today, too, and we, that we do experience, don't we? Um, that loving relationship with God that we can have through reading his word, through prayer, through serving him, uh, we develop that relationship with him when we feel loved. I think as Christians, we can say that we feel loved. I know when I became a Christian, I could say the big difference between, you know, being, being one of the big differences between before and after is that I feel loved by the God of the universe, right? That, is, that makes a big difference in who we are, I think, that when we feel that. Not that we don't have people who love us in our life, too, but knowing that God loves us, the creator of the universe, makes a difference. It gives us purpose and meaning in our life. So going back to our passage here, we see that Jesus uh, 
was placed on the donkey. I think he, you can see it's kind of interesting how he kind of tries out, uh, they, it says he put him on both of the animals. So I kind of think that maybe he, he sat on the, the, the mother donkey and then on the colt, maybe to show the colt that it's okay for somebody to sit on you. I don't know, but anyway, it's interesting that he sat on both of them, but he actually rode the colt, the foal of a donkey, into Jerusalem and down the mountain. So I'm going to read to you um, Luke chapter 19, verse 37, because so, I, I want you to get this picture of what's actually occurring. So, um, so in verse 36, I'll start there. So as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, right? You're familiar with this. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude began to rejoice. So that's the part I want you to understand that maybe is not so apparent when you kind of just read through and you're thinking about other things that I just want you to think about the, the place he was at. He was on this, mount, this mountain, the Mount of Olives, and he began his descent down and then, you know, and then flattened out into a valley and then into, the, into, into Jerusalem. So, um, and I just want to give you an appreciation of the significance of this location in the Bible from the biblical perspective and also in the relationship to Jerusalem. So sometimes referred to as Olivet, this mount was named after the olive trees that once covered it. The mount is part of a mountain ridge that runs to the, uh, on the east side of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, and the brook Kidron runs through the valley. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the western slope of this mountain, which is about 27 feet high. And so we're going to show a few pictures here just to give you an idea uh, what it looks like. Do we have those pictures? Not yet. Okay. No, they're coming. They're coming. Okay. Um, pictures. Okay. So we're just going to keep going. So, um, so it gives you an idea. There they are. Okay, good. So the, can I get the first one? The other one? Okay. So this is actually a, not a picture, but an but a artist rendering of, uh, I, th I think this is supposed to be the artist rendering. Let me just turn this off for a second. The artist rendering of the scene of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, which, oops. <laughs> Too many plants up here. Or either that, I got to stop walking around. So you see, you see the mount uh, here. And this this is not the scene of him, uh, you know, at the at the uh, triumphal entry. This is another scene, an artist rendering of another scene. But you can see that it's not really that high, right? He's he's looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he's here on the mount, and his disciples are with him. And I just want you to get gives you the sense that it's high, but it's not that high. He's far away, but he's not that far away. It's only a couple of miles. Okay, the next picture. And so this is a, this is a picture of modern day, um, you know, Mount, Mount, the Mount of Olives. And this is from down in the valley, and they're looking up. And does anybody know, remember this used to be covered with olive trees, but now it's, it's not anymore. And does anybody know what all those things are there? Are those rocks? Does anybody know? Graves, there you go, David. Very good. Very good. Yeah, those are ooh. A little feedback there. I don't I don't need any feedback till after the message, but really. <laughs> so those so those are the those are graves of, of Jewish people. It's a massive Jewish cemetery. Um, there's now over one hundred and fifty thousand tombs there. And the cemetery is over three thousand years old, so um, it would have been there at the time of Jesus would have been used as a cemetery as well. 
And according to Jewish tradition, the Messiah will appear here and will bring the dead back to life. So that's why uh, there's so many people buried here. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. But. <laughs> um, because they all feel like it's going to put them in a better situation when the resurrection comes. So we can take those pictures down now. I don't want you to be distracted. Um, so now in addition to that, the Mount of Olives was a site of many events in the Bible and will be the site of, of a yet future fulfill, fulfillment of prophecy. In the Old Testament, when King Solomon's, uh, I'm sorry, King David's son Absalom usurped his authority and took his control of his kingdom away from him, David and his loyal followers fled by the way of the Mount of Olives. The Old Testament describes it in this way. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot, and all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Um, King Solomon used the Mount of Olives, unfortunately, for idol worship. And in one of Ezekiel's visions, he sees the glory of the Lord come to rest upon the mountain east of Jerusalem, which would be the Mount of Olives. So many references to the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you know, you Bible scholars who read the New Testament know that the Mount of Olives is referred to a number of times. Jesus made many trips there. Uh, who, who were some of the famous, well-known biblical characters who lived there? Well, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived in Bethany, which was on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And, uh, of course, the passage we're looking at today starts on the Mount of Olives. Uh, during the Passion Week, as you take the Passion Week challenge and read uh, Matthew chapter 21 through the end, or from one of the other Gospels, you notice that the Mount of Olives, you'll, you will notice that the Mount of Olives is mentioned a number of times. Uh, during the Passion Week, Jesus gave what, what we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, was, so this teaching was given while he was on the Mount of Olives. So does anyone know what the Olivet Discourse is? I'm sure there's some of us who know what that is. So you can raise your hand if you know what the Olivet Discourse is. Anybody? No? A couple? Okay. So the Olivet Discourse is uh, when, when the, you've probably heard of this anyway, when the, when the disciples asked Jesus, well, when will these future events happen? And he explained to them, he goes through the whole teaching about the future events, about the tribulation period, about the second coming, and that is what we call, the Bible doesn't say it's the Olivet Discourse. We call it the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus went to the Olivet, I'm sorry, to the Mount of Olives with his disciples after the Last Supper to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there he was betrayed and arrested. And after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus once again stood on the Mount of Olives in his final post-resurrection appearance. He stood there as he was taken up into heaven while his disciples were, were watching him. Immediately following his ascension, what happened? Two angels appeared there on the Mount of Olives and told the disciples that in the same way Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And according to the prophet Zechariah, the Messiah will not only return in the same way, coming down from heaven, but to the same place. Um, Zechariah 14.4, Zechariah declares on that, uh, quote, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And in the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. So it is a significant place in biblical um, history and not only in the past but in the future yet fulfilled prophecy and just um, again only 27 feet high not far from Jerusalem overlooking the city so 
back more to our passage here. So we're talking about Jesus coming down from now the Mount of Olives on this colt, the foal of a donkey, into Jerusalem. And we talked about the significance of the prophecy that he's coming in peace. Um, so there are, there's also an other significant, um, uh, there's other significance to this event here of him coming into Jerusalem in this way because Jesus was making a public claim to be the Messiah and the King of Israel in fulfillment of this prophecy. So not, not only was he saying, I come in peace, but he was also saying, I am coming in fulfillment of this prophecy about your king coming to you, and I am your king. I am your Messiah. And apparently the people seem to know, what's, well, they, they really seem to understand what, what is going on. Maybe not everybody, of course, but some people did, or a good portion of them, of them did, because they spread out their clothes on the road and cut down branches for, to put on the road to smooth out the way for him so the animals would have, you know, wouldn't get their feet wet or whatever. And um, so why do I say this is, uh, th that this shows that they had an understanding that he was their king or their messiah? It's because doing that was an act of homage to royalty. So in the Old Testament, we see that that's what they did for kings. So they're doing this for Jesus. That means they see him as a king. And of course, in case you missed it, this is why we call it Palm Sunday, because they cut down the palm trees, put them on the road. Palm Sunday, got it, good. So they're making way for their king. And the multitudes also shout out here, as you see in verse uh, 9, they shout out Hosanna to the son of David. And I think that's why we have these banners here, right, with the palm on there and the, the word Hosanna. And so in honor of uh, Palm Sunday. So they shout out um, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. So why are they saying these things? What does this mean? Where did they get this from? So, um, well, they're, they're calling him the son of David, and... Um, the phrase, the son of David, is, is a title for the Messiah, right? You know, many of you, that um, it was prophesied in the Old Testament to King David that he would have a descendant in his line who would be the savior of the people, right? The, the, the savior, the Messiah of the Jewish people. So if anybody was referred to as the son of David, it was akin to saying, um, you know, you're the Messiah, especially in, the, in this, in this um, situation. So they're recognizing him as a Messiah by saying this. Also, the phrase Hosanna in the highest, which is only found in these New Testament passages about the triumphant entry. Um, this is a Hebrew, he comes from a Hebrew word meaning save now or save us we pray. And actually, they were quoting, and I think they probably knew it, they were quoting a psalm, Psalm 118, when they said uh, this passage here, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They were quoting, and they probably knew that. And that's another reason we can say that they knew that they were recognizing the Messiah. Um, so, um, and I think when they were saying, save now, what do you think they were saying? What, what did they want from him when they said, save us now? Well, it's probably not what we would think, right? We, would, we know now, we have the benefit of looking back on things, and we know that Jesus came to save Sinners, right? He, he died for the sins of the world. And we all, you know, many of us here are Christians, if not all of us, and we recognize that uh, we need, you know, at one point in our life we needed to be saved from our sins, and Jesus died for our sins and paid the price for our sins so that we can receive him and receive the gift of, uh, receive forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life. And hopefully uh, all of us here have experienced that 
and if not, I hope that you know someday soon that you will. But that's not what they were thinking. They weren't saying, save me. You know, we came to the Lord and said, save me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I, I can't save myself. I need you. Thank you for dying for my sins. That's not what they were saying. Uh, their expectation of the Messiah is that he would save them by defeating their enemies and, and establishing his kingdom here on earth. You see, they remember back from their history books that King Solomon had this really great kingdom, right, where Israel was ruling the world. They had, they had their freedom. They had, um, you know, they even says in the Bible that silver was regarded as nothing because gold was so plentiful in the time of, of King Solomon. So that's what they really wanted. They really wanted uh, a political messiah who would defeat their political enemies. Um, they were hoping for a messianic deliverer who would lead a revolt against Rome, kick Rome out, set up the kingdom, and life would be good again as it was in the days of Solomon. Um, but in the reality it was that Jesus came at his first coming to be a spiritual Messiah who would defeat their spiritual enemies, which of course is much more important. But there would be a second coming too, and that is still to come when he will defeat their political enemies. Uh, another thing about the people here in, in Israel in general is many of them did not recognize that the Messiah was to be a suffering Messiah. They, they always saw the Messiah, you know, they liked the passages about him, you know, ruling and, and, and reigning over the earth and, and those kind of things. And those things will happen someday. But first, he was to, to be a suffering Messiah, who would be a man of sorrows, uh, who would be um, crushed for people's sins. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 53, um, that the Messiah would be crushed for the sins of the people and die for the, the sins of the people. And it's most likely that the same people here who sang his praises on Palm Sunday were the same ones who a few days later would shout, crucify him, when asked by Pilate what should be done with this man. So it's ironic, isn't it, that the crowd was shouting for Jesus to save them but they really didn't know what that, what, that, what that meant. They were looking for this political um, salvation, this political defeat of their enemies. But really, he did come to save them, but in an entirely different way. And I'm sure many of those people came to realize that at some point, that he came to save them by dying on the cross for their sins and paying the penalty. We know that without the remission of, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, right? That's how our, our sins are forgiven, through the blood of Jesus. And um, he had to come and pay uh, for our, pay for our uh, sin by dying on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness and eternal life. And this eternal benefit outweighs any temporal benefit that they would have had by defeating Rome. Now, we don't see it in this passage, but the Pharisees who were present told Jesus to rebuke the crowd. They shouldn't be, call they, they shouldn't be saying all these things. Well, why did they want... Jesus to rebuke the crowd. Well, because they knew that the crowd was recognizing him as the Messiah by all the actions that they were doing, by putting the things on the road and by the, the words that they were saying, and they didn't like it. They wanted Jesus to rebuke the crowd, and he said, um, he said that, that he would not do this because if he did, uh, his followers, if he told his followers to stop shouting, that the rocks would cry out. So Jesus, uh, this was a, a big moment in the in, in the ministry of Jesus, right, to come into Jerusalem and, and present himself as king. Again, he didn't have to tell, he didn't tell people, uh, you know, do this. All he did is ask for a couple of animals. <laughs> and he goes into, into Jerusalem, and people are recognizing him as the Messiah, putting things out for him on the road, shouting out his praises, recognizing him as the Messiah. 
And of course, the uh, Pharisees didn't like, like that. And because they were really looking for a chance to arrest him, right? And as long as he was so popular, uh, they couldn't do that. But they had, did have to wait for their moment, uh, getting one of his followers to betray him and arresting him in the middle of the night when nobody was around. Um, so so uh, Jesus made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And he, his desire today is to still make a triumphal entry into your heart. If you have not received him as your Savior, he wants to be to received by you into, his heart, into your heart so that you can know uh, salvation and the, the free gift of eternal life and also to be, have that loving relationship with God the Father. And for, for us, us Christians here, uh, this is a reminder that Passion Week is here, and I hope you'll accept the Passion Week challenge. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can be together today, and we pray uh, that your word would continue to do its work in our hearts, and we pray that as we look ahead to what we call Passion Week here, uh, as we uh, come upon Easter Sunday here in, in the next week, that we will take the Passion Challenge uh, seriously, Lord, and uh, read, read your word and pray and, and do acts of service for you to increase our passion for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.